I just can't imagine now I live in England for four years. Five minutes walk would be like, oh, that's long. I can't, I can't do it. Or if it's like 15 degree, it would be like, it's too hot. I can't go out. There's a lot of complaining, but at the time I did not complain. I was fighting for my life to survive. To, I was literally fighting to eat or to drink. That's Mez, my 18-year-old foster brother, comparing his life now to when he was making the journey from Eritrea to the UK at just 13. Today he shares his story of resilience and survival, from fleeing compulsory military service in his home country to crossing the Sahara Desert and not eating for 15 days, from his boat capsizing in the Mediterranean Sea to hiding underneath the Eurotunnel train to get to the UK. This is a very important episode for me because it was Mez becoming my brother that was a catalyst to me quitting my job in fashion and focusing all my energy into the refugee crisis in the worldwide tribe. But that's a story for another episode. Today is about Mez, my ultimate inspiration in everything I do, every single day. Your episode is much awaited. Really? Yeah, there's a hype. Mum built it up last week. She set the scene, gave a little bit of your backstory, but actually people want to hear it from you now. Ugh, don't make that noise into the, into the microphone. Little squelch. No, but really, yeah. how do you feel about the fact that people want to hear your story? Yeah, I feel quite good, excited as well. Do you feel yeah. like you're ready to to talk about it now? Yeah, especially when I have done like a lot of talks with you, that gives you a bit of boost to do the podcast, the pod podcast, podcast. Podcast. Go yeah. on, say it. Podcast. 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 <laughs> Podcast. <laughs> Can't say it. You're listening to the Worldwide Tribe podcast, stories from the refugee crisis. I'm your host, Jazz O'Hara, and together with some very special guests, we'll be taking you on a journey across the world without you having to go anywhere. We're here to amplify voices, from the people leaving their countries and everything behind them, to the volunteers working alongside them. We'll be hearing from those currently living in refugee camps and people working on the front line, the real heroes of today, the humans behind the statistics and the headlines. Join me as we transcend borders, nationalities, religions and languages to hear from the people with which we share this world, our worldwide tribe. So Mez, let's start from the beginning, okay? Let's go back to Eritrea. I think that a lot of people know very little about Eritrea. I was mm. the same when you first came here. I didn't even really know where Eritrea was or what was going on there. So let's talk a little bit about that. Why did you leave Eritrea? Well, the main reason is the military uh, service. Your father and your brother were already in the army. Yeah, they were already in there. And uh, when you go to it, it's for life. So when you go into the military service, it's for life? Yeah. Well, they say like, oh, it's only for two years, three years, and then you can come back to your family. But that never happened. Okay. Yeah. And you'd already seen that with your dad and your brother. That yeah. That wasn't the case. Yeah, that was not the case. We were waiting for my dad. For example, my dad went to the military service and then he didn't come back for almost five, six years. And then they told him he can go home and that he, he came home. I only gave him one month to like to see us and then he had to come back. 
had to go back into the yeah. army again. He's been in the army ever since, right? Yeah. yeah. And how many years ago was that? How many years has he been in the army altogether? Yes, yes. But from what kind of age did they start bringing people into the army? From how young? 13, 14 years old. They took my brother when he was about 15 mm-hmm. and he didn't come back for a long time. And I was imagining, oh, if they get me, that will happen to me as well. You don't have any freedom to do whatever you want to do. If I go into military service, I will never come back for the rest of my life. It's like slavery. You don't even get paid. You probably get 500 a month. In, in England, that's about 10 quid or so. So 500 nakfa, nakfa. nakfa a month. So you get literally nothing. You can't. It doesn't even buy you anything like for yourself. So how are you going to supposed to look after your kids? So basically you knew that you didn't want that. Yeah, I did not want to go there. I just want to my life and be free. Because also by going into the army, you were really fighting for a dictatorship that you didn't agree with, right? Yeah, exactly. And if I go there, it means I'm supporting him. I'm, I'm doing what he told me to do. And when you say he, you mean the Prime Minister, the President? The President, yeah. How long has he been in power? He's been in power since 1991, so he's about... 30 years. 30 years Nearly now. 30 years yeah. with no elections. No election whatsoever. You didn't want to fight for someone that you didn't believe in, but also you didn't want to leave your family behind, right? Because by going into the army, you'd be leaving your mum without your dad, without your older brother, and you were at the time doing some work to earn some money for the family right yeah i was literally the father of the the house because my dad is not there my brother is not there so everything was left to me i have to look after the kids and my mom was pregnant by the time so she couldn't even do a lot of work so i was doing a lot of stuff for the house i used to love school even though you don't learn much and they treat you like a like the animals for example in england if you come late to class, we'd be like, oh, I'm sorry, I'm late. But in Eritrea, if you're late, you get punished for it. You have to crawl on the floor or you have to wait in the sand barefoot, for example, or you have to walk on your knee or they beat you with a stick like 10, 15 times. So it's a lot of aggressive rules that they used to have in the schools. So you get punished, you get beaten if you do something wrong. Yeah, definitely. And if you didn't go to school, you have to go to the army. Um, I used to love to go to school and learn. You wanted a proper education? Yeah, I wanted a proper education. But at the time, I was more interested that helping my my family to just stay stay like alive for a while until my dad comes back so I can go back to school. So how did you do that? What were you doing to do that? I was working on a carpenter thing, like with wood. I used to work in there like literally every day. And then when you come back home, you have to hide from the soldiers every night. The soldiers will come and collect a lot of people who doesn't go to school. So you have to hide from them. And I've been doing that for a long time. I used to earn good money. I didn't have any problem with money or anything. So you, you earned enough money to support your whole family? Yeah, I was earning enough money to support the whole family. I was had enough money for myself. I had literally no problem um, when I was doing that. But the only problem I had is the freedom that if I could do that without anyone harassing me anyone after me Mm -hmm. I would uh, be happy just live there and do what I was doing but you didn't have the ability to do that yeah you have to watch yourself 24 7 how many little siblings did you have younger than you well I had three and then my mum was pregnant 
So you really felt like you had a responsibility yeah. to make sure that they had food on the table. Exactly. How okay. old were you at this point? Yeah, 13. And then by that point, everything started to change very quickly. I was not thinking to leave my country at all. And it's because I have no idea where to go, where to even begin. <laughs> so, you hadn't thought about no. England or Europe before. No, I didn't even know that. I didn't even, like, you probably hear the names of the countries, but I have no idea where they are, what to do. I, the only choice I had was to just go to the military service and do what other people are doing. So you had a plan to hide until they caught you and then you'd just go into the military like everybody else? Exactly. I have, to, I have to because I was not thinking to leave my country at all in any sense. Did you not hear about other people going to Europe or going to England? Well, in 2009, a lot of people were leaving from Eritrea to Israel. And we used to hear a lot of horrible stories about and they used to get caught and uh, they used to sell the kidneys and stuff. And my mum used to tell me that a lot of people are leaving the country and they're getting caught in this Sahara desert. They caught, if, they, if you get caught and they have to pay money, but if you didn't pay money, they, they just kill you and sell your kidney and stuff. For me, it was like, oh God, I, didn't even, I don't want to do any, any of that. I'd rather go to the army. So you heard these horror stories of people that had left yeah. the country and decided that that wasn't worth it for yeah, you. Yeah, it wasn't worth it. And the government announced anyone who tries to leave the country or anyone who attempt even to leave the border, you get shot. So you thought that you were trapped in Eritrea and that was going to be your your life? Yeah, I thought it, was, it just would be like just my life. It's just like everyone else. Tell me what, what changed your mind. What happened? I was I was at work and then... All of a sudden, out of nowhere, one of my own, I have uh, really good friends, done everything with them. One of them found me in the, in the town. I was like, what, what's going on? What's up? What's up? And he's like, oh, well, I'm thinking to, to just leave the, leave the country. And I was like, um, what do you mean? You don't even know where you're going. And then we call that off like completely because even if anyone can hear us, will be so dangerous. Couldn't even have the conversation, like what we were doing was really bad. So if anyone had listened to us, we'd be go to prison straight away. So it was you, Nahom, and, and Johannes. Johannes. Yeah. And so Johannes had the idea yeah, to leave. Yeah. He came to you, he wanted to talk to you and Nahom, yeah. and you and Nahom said, no, you're crazy. Yeah. Let's not even talk about it. Yeah, not, don't even bring it up again. Okay. That night... We were chilling. I came back from work and all of a sudden, all the militarists were just like all over the town. There was a lot of noise and it was like, what was going on? What was going on? And suddenly they were literally next to us and then we just ran away. So you were at home and you could hear the military coming to collect people yeah. for the army. Yeah, literally knocking every door. And we were just like, oh shit, let's go. And then we just ran away. We didn't have much clothes. I literally had like t-shirt and trousers they were after us it was like going shot to the air and stuff we just kept going and going and going and going you didn't have a chance to tell your mum where you were going or anything no 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 no. literally we were outside and then we heard them and then we just run away three of us and we didn't stop at all like they chased us but they gave up after a while 
So we were like, oh God, we can't come back. They know we live there. If we come back, they will come back straight away and get us. Mm-hmm. So what shall we do? Somehow we agree what Johannes said. It's like, let's just continue and see what happens. What have we got to lose, basically? Yeah, literally, you've got nothing to lose. So let's just go. We didn't know where to go. We all grew up in the same town. We literally, we never traveled from that town. You didn't have Google Maps. You didn't have a map, like any paper or anything. Did you have a phone? We didn't have a phone. We didn't have anything. We just like wear like the same clothes that we were like, go to bed or something. Just a t-shirt and shorts. Yeah. No money. We had literally nothing. We had no money whatsoever. We just, okay, let's, let's just try and see what happens. Where did you sleep? Yeah, it took us a couple of days and then one night we slept under the tree, um, which is really scary because there was a lot of hyenas around us. We were like shaking the whole night. We agree like if one of us got to sleep and one of us have to look. But <laughs> we didn't trust each other, so we all stayed out for the night. You didn't trust that someone would stay awake. <laughs> yeah, literally. We were, we were so tired. I trust them for my life, but I'm not going to trust them like for that because... It's hard. It's Just- hard. We couldn't even sleep because they were making loud and loud noises. So what we were, the hyenas? Yeah. Oh my god! Yeah, we were shitting ourselves. Like, oh god! It's like the Lion King. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> have you seen the new one? Yeah. <laughs> and then the second night, we followed a farmer, and he went. We went to his house, and then we slept with the cows around the cows. For, slept in a farm. We slept in the farm. Did the farmer know you were there? No, no, no. no. We saw him getting all the cows in. We just jumped in and (laughs) slept for the night. After two days and two nights, the boys made it to the border of Ethiopia. It was just a fence, nothing else. With a lot of um, spiky, sharp things. Barbed wire and stuff. Yeah, something like that. Yeah, no buildings. But there was lots of soldiers around. Yeah, a lot lot of soldiers. So we were just like, okay, let's just jump and just go. And then we were trying to jump, but we ripped up trousers. It was so sharp. No one saw us. The story that I'm telling now is a completely different story what other people would tell you how they get to Ethiopia because people will pay smugglers to to get them through that. So you were just so lucky. That no, just so you lucky, just, just walking around. I guess like because you were still a child, you didn't have that idea of how dangerous it was, really. Yeah, we had no idea how dangerous it was. Once he had crossed the first border, local people directed Mers to his first refugee camp. The first time I arrived in that camp, it was something else. i never seen some place like that. Really? It was all intent. The people, how many people were there, it was ridiculous. It was over 3,000 or 4,000 Eritrean people, even more, I think. So many kids. It was it was huge camp in the middle of nowhere. I was like, oh wow, people are actually leaving the country every single day. That's when you realise the scale of the problem. I thought the problem was just me, but it's not just me. It was thousands, thousands, thousands of people that did not want to go to the army, do anything with the government. So that was the first time that you realised that you were not alone in how you felt. Mm. The first time that you realised that thousands of people from your country were not happy with the situation in your country and wanted to leave. Because I guess you could never talk about that when you were in Eritrea. In Eritrea, no one talks about what's happening and what's going on and how many people are leaving and where they're going. So when you actually see it by yourself and you would be like, oh my God, 
So you remember being shocked? I was so shocked that to see so many people are leaving the country in the home. I don't get it. I was too young. How can all these people just leave instead of standing for themselves? Like just say, we don't want this government. We want someone else. We want this. Mm -hmm. We want this. But as I said, it's not as simple as that. If you, if you even say, oh, we don't like this government, you get killed. Yeah. Or you get put underground. Were people kind to you there? Oh, definitely. Like It was like in a little community. It was not you get your own food. It's, this is my food. It's not like that. You just get it all together. You mix it all together. You eat together. Even with strangers that you don't know? I have no idea the people next door, who, who they are or where they're from. But in that moment, you feel like you know them for a long time. And literally, I didn't have anything and I shared it from every, all of my friends. Because I guess all that matters in that moment is survival. Exactly. You know, as long as you guys are surviving and that you're there together mm. and alive, then that becomes the most important thing, right? Yeah. Mez stayed in this camp for two weeks, all the while worrying about one very important thing. How am I going to tell my parents that I'm safe and I'm still alive? Because I've been travelling for almost one month and three weeks or so, and my mum have no idea where I am. Because there was no communication between Eritrea and Ethiopia at the time, right? Yeah. You couldn't make phone calls or... No, the line was cut because of the war. So we can't call anyone from Ethiopia to Eritrea or from Eritrea to Ethiopia. So Mez agreed with a smuggler to take him to the next country, Sudan. We didn't have much information how long it's going to take. They they tell you, like, it's going to take three days or something like that. So we don't know, like, full, like, don't have full information about the journey. We travelled for the whole night and then in the morning they dropped us in some forest and they were like, you can stay here for a while and then we'll be back really soon. And they didn't come back for a week. What, they left you in the forest for a week? Yeah, and we didn't have food or anything. We didn't have any money or anything. So oh my God, so what did you eat? What did you drink? We were literally starving, just drinking water. They didn't come back, so we called someone in the camp. And they were like, okay, we have a smuggler that do the same things. And you're like, okay, great. So just send him as soon as possible. We're really hungry. And so he got involved and he sold us to the Sudanese guy. He sold you? Yeah. So he get his money. So he goes back to camp and the Sudanese guy pick us up and got us to Sudan. We were traveling at least five days. Oh my God. You stop in the night time and you travel all day. Once Mez had crossed the border into Sudan, he was able to make the phone call he had been waiting for. First time I contacted my mum, it was after like two months or so. I called her and she couldn't believe I was still alive. She said like, hi mum, how are you? How are you doing? And stuff like that. And what did she uh, say? She didn't even believe like, like when I said it's me. She was like, ah, oh. she couldn't say anything. She would just like rock down straight away. She couldn't say one word. She just cried and she couldn't talk to me at all. She was crying. My dad was at home that time. My dad had to come and pick up the phone so I can talk to him. He had to take over. <laughs> yeah, he had to take over. And he was really emotional as well. Like, why did that? Why did you leave? I'm not here. Your brother is not here. Why do you leave the family? But Mez had some difficult news to tell his parents. Without realising it, agreeing to the journey from Ethiopia to Sudan had left him indebted to the smuggler. 
I told my dad that he needs to pay about 70 grand of Nakfa. And he's like, I can't do that. I don't have any money to pay that, um, to pay for you. And I was like, okay, it's whether you pay it or I'm going to die. And that's the only choice that uh, we have. I didn't say much. And I gave him to the smuggler. And the smuggler was saying, oh, you have to pay the money or we're going to sell him to some other smugglers, which is really horrible ones. And then my dad was like, yeah, I'll pay. I'll pay really quickly. Don't do anything horrible. So they gave him like a week or so, but it didn't happen. And it took him like two months. He gathered the money, begging in the street and asking a lot of our families and stuff. Neighbours, friends. Like, literally everyone in the town. So in that two months that you were waiting, were the smugglers horrible to you? The smugglers, because I said I'm going to pay, they treat you all right because they need the money. But before you pay... You only eat twice a day and you're not allowed to to wash. Or you're not allowed to go out from the the little house that they put you. And then when you pay, you're allowed to have a shower, for example. So for those two months that you were staying with the smugglers waiting for that money, you couldn't shower, you couldn't leave the house, you were kind of a prisoner. Yeah, you are a prisoner to them. Until you pay your money, you're a prisoner. Were you emotional? Did you miss your mum and dad? Did you feel guilty about leaving? Did you feel sad about it? At first, I didn't feel guilty or sad at all because I was thinking that, oh, I left, it's, it's for the better, it's for the best. But then I was really sick, so I can only think about home. If I was at home, my mum would have done so much. I would still have my bed. I would still have everyone around me to look after me. Was this when you were in Sudan you got when, sick? Yeah, I was in Sudan, I got sick. Everything I ate, I just vomited straight out. Yeah, it was really, really tough four months in, in that place. But then miracle happens sometimes. It turned out Meza's mum's brother had a friend in Sudan. He contacted me. He was really, really nice. He took me from the smuggler's house, bought a lot of oranges and put the pills and the hot water and blanket over me. Oh, to make you feel better. Yeah, it was a lot of sweat. And I was coughing blood by then. I, was, I didn't go to any hospital or anything. And he literally just get rid of the cough. Oh my God. So basically your mum contacted your uncle in mm. South Africa who mm. contacted some friends in Sudan who came to get you. Yeah. So he saved you from the smugglers yeah. basically and made you better. So much better. You. Yeah, he looked after me really well. And yeah, I was in so much better state. Nice to be like looked after for it mm. like again. And then he went back to Eritrea to see his wife and then everything went back to shit again. I was on my own for three months. Where were you at this point? Yeah, still in Sudan, but um, just like going from other place to other place. So Mez decided to move to the next country, Libya, by crossing the Sahara Desert. I used to hear stories, people like dying in the Sahara and stuff. But I, no, at that time, you, you believe them, but you want to do it anyway. So when I left Sudan, it takes us 15 days in the Sahara Desert. That 15 days was ridiculous. No one can travel with 100-something people in a truck on that heat. It was over 50 degree, even hotter. You don't eat for 15 days. You didn't even have enough water, did you? Yeah, you don't even have enough water to have... You can't even have one bottle of water a day. You have to share one bottle in two people. I just... I, I can't imagine how I even cross the Sahara Desert. The people that travel with you they were really kind, really nice, have to stick together. 15 days is 
it doesn't seem long, but if you're traveling for 15 days in the Sahara Desert, you'd rather die. With no food as well. Actually, no food. You only have a drink. And people do die, right? Yeah. Well, you see a lot of skeletons in the floor. You, you probably think, like, oh, that'll be me next if anything happened. Because if you fall off the truck, they don't wait for you, right? You literally got over 100 miles per hour. If you fall off, that's it. No one stops for you. What about the women and children? That's a good question because they will look after, actually, the kids, especially the kids. And if you have a pregnant lady, we'll put them in the middle so they have like comfortable seats. But even though I was 13, I was not considered as a, a child. I was considered as an adult. You have to look after yourself. You have to fight for your seat. You have to fight for everything. So eventually you made it to Libya. Yeah, after 15 days struggle, I made it to Libya. And, and in Libya, Libya, I mean, a few people have described Libya to me as hell on earth for a refugee. That's a, that's a really good way to explain Libya. They put you in a house and they put over 300, 400 people in one room and you sleep in the top of each other. You literally have no space. If you sleep in the side, people will literally will be on your ass and sleep attached to you. They will be sandwiched to each other. It won't get less. It will get higher and higher, the number of people. When I arrived, it was about 300 people. We waited a month or so, sleeping like that. We're eating once a day. They give you one dish of spaghetti. You just cooked in the, in the water and put salt in it. No sauce? No, 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 no. They just like cooked it in hot water. Maybe they put some spices or something. People must have got sick in there as well, we, right? Oh, God, yeah. We used to get sick of the food and it just vomited straight out because it doesn't go in at all. Oh, we're just eating some water spaghetti. What is that? But you have to eat it. Otherwise, you're going to starve. I have to fight for it as well. They put eight people for one dish. You, you put your hand once and then when you go twice... It's finished. You have to eat it really quick. Yeah, it's really hot as well. They just get it from the stove or something and they give it to you. And everyone has to be really quick. You have one bite and then go in for the second. and That's it. I remember you telling me that it was so hot that you burnt your hands on it. Yeah. It's, it was it was the, more, the most horrible, horrible place I've ever been. And now, even I remember, I get shivers from it. How can you pour some people through it like at least give them food it's hard enough to even be there in that place but if you don't eat or wash you get dirty you get some infection around your hands mm -hmm. and the place was just disgusting you have to be quiet 24 7 as well you can't say a word because you're not supposed yeah, to be there you're right? not supposed to be there so if you make any loud anything you just come and be i remember one night we were just fed up of waiting it was two months and it was about 700 800 people and we didn't get enough food or water at all for like two days and we were complaining they got a lot of guys from outside and they came with massive stick and metals and stuff and they were like why are they making a lot of noise this is a country why, why are they even here and they were just going through beating everybody up I can remember one guy got hit around his eyes. Everyone thought his eyes were just popped out because they hit him really hard with a massive stick and he was like bruised until mm. we got to Italy. It was mad. It was so bad. It was bleeding and stuff. Do you think that he did ever get his eyesight back? 
Oh yeah, he could he could see. He was bandaged the whole time. Fuck. Yeah. It was ridiculous. So you were waiting to cross the Mediterranean Sea, right? To get on a mm-hmm. boat mm-hmm. and to get to Italy, to get to Europe. So eventually that happened. Yeah, after a couple of months, 800 people got together. Everyone was happy, everyone paid. She the smuggler came and was like, "Okay, we're going to go tonight." Midnight came up. 800 people got together and we were going in a van. They put 100 people or so in a van and literally everyone nearly died on that van before we even get in, the, in that boat. Because it was so cramped. It was so cramped and we couldn't breathe. I literally fainted and uh, I could I could catch my breath a bit, but a lot of people when we come out of the van, it was on the floor, like knocked out. The smuggler was like, oh, take it easy, like send 50 or so at a time. We got time and stuff. And then they tried to do that. But I was like, people are nearly died here. How are we supposed to survive in the, in the bloody water? It was so dark. We couldn't see anything. And they put 400 people in the bottom and then four, maybe 400 and something in the top. And it's like, off you go. One of the smugglers got the boat moving for a couple of hours and he told someone to drive the boat and then he just got back to Libya. So basically he was on the boat for a couple of hours and then he taught someone how to drive and which direction to go and then he got a boat, a a, a speed boat back to Libya. Then the moment that they had been waiting for. About 12 o'clock in the daytime we saw a massive, massive boat from far away. We were so tired by the time, we were so like excited for someone to come and save us. People jumping around, trying to get attention, tell them we're here to save us. And then the boat just flipped upside down and capsized straight away. People were manic and the boat just kept going up and down, up and down, and people trying to hold on on that boat. And you you couldn't swim, did you? You'd never seen the sea before this crossing? I've never seen as big and as dark sea like that before it was so scary as well when we got into the water i was like shit like we're dying i was trying to grab someone's hand someone's jacket and people shout and cry some people straight away give up like oh that's it do you think you were gonna die yeah i was literally splashing away trying to get to the boat and hold to something and i was like okay we're going down that's it and then out of nowhere it was about 15 or so speedboats all around us and picking people, throwing life jackets. I was holding to the boat. I didn't want to let go. I was literally holding it really tight. A lot of people from the Italy Gold Coast, I can't say the word. Coast Guard. Yeah, Coast Guard. Jumping in, picking a lot of people out, a lot of children, a lot of women. They were like literally so quick. You can't imagine they would save 800 people like in about half an hour or so and they saved everyone right they literally saved everyone when they were saving i was holding tight uh, some wood and they were like you, you're cool just let go they're trying to grab me from <laughs> from the wood and i was like no no no, no i don't know. and then they just forced me like pull me out from from the water and put me in the big boat and took you to italy yeah and then they put us in a huge boat big ship they sent big uh, rope thing like this down there and then everybody climbed up and they gave us, I still remember the golden warm thing, blanket thing. The it was emergency blanket. Yeah, yeah, that thing. Uh, it was warm up actually. Yeah, like, we did, like, oh, why are they giving us a plastic? It helped. It yeah, worked. it helped. We were all wet, so it just really helped and it got dry really quickly. 
Was it cold in the water? Oh my god, we were freezing. Like I was like shivering for almost an hour or so. Like <laughs> like, and then you got warm. They gave us nice food, juice, orange juice or so, biscuits, biscuits and stuff. From twelve o'clock to about six o'clock in the evening, we were going to Italy. Okay, so it took you about six, six hours, hours to get there. Yeah. Upon arrival in Italy, Mez was sent to a camp for unaccompanied minors. I had the most nice shower ever. I took Best shower of so your life. long. <laughs> I felt so dirty. When we woke up, it was a woman there that made us really nice Italian food. Mm, Italian food yeah. is good. <laughs> oh, it was so good. We ate it with really nice bread. And we were like, oh, this is, this is great. So why did you decide to leave there? I, I didn't decide, I didn't want to leave there at all. It was a lot of boys that uh, came up in the evening and uh, they were like, we gave our fingerprint in here and they take so long to give us asylum. asylum and we can't work, we can't go to school, we can't do anything. We're just trapped here and playing football all the time. Well, that sounds good to you though, doesn't it? Yeah, and <laughs> when they mentioned football, I was like, oh, okay. <laughs> yeah, I want to just play football. Yeah, they're like, no, think for your future. So they gave you some advice, basically. Yeah, they, they've been there for a long time and they've done nothing, you know. And they were like, if you want to stay, you can stay, but you can go. And the boy who was next to me was like, no, I'm going. It was about dinner time and we just like opened the door and we just left. We left and after two days and we didn't With know. With no what, plan. Uh, no plan. We, I didn't know where we were going. Flip flop, like the largest flip flop ever. And we just walked all day and we found Arabic guy in the train station. He was like, where are you going? And he's like, we don't know, we're going to Roma. And he's like, are you insane? You, you're trying to walk to Roma? <laughs> and Roma is from here, it's about five hours or so on the bus. On the bus on and the you're going to walk there. Yeah. <laughs> this man helped Mez and his friend to buy a train ticket to Rome. But Mez was shocked by what he found there. So many refugees there as well. And they didn't have any house. They were living in a little camp thing. They live in the street and sleeping in the top of each other. Like, what is going on? Mez's uncle had another friend who lived in Rome. Mez had called him en route, so he was there waiting for them when the boys arrived. He saw me and he was like, oh my God. He took a picture of me. I'll show you when I find it. I look terrible. I was really skinny. The saddest person ever. He took my shopping for some new clothes. We got really nice shoes. Still have those shoes. They're the my, shoes that you were wearing when you arrived, the trainers. Yeah, yeah my favourite shoes. Mum talked about them in the last podcast, that they arrived and they were wet and dirty and we bought mm. you new trainers straight away, but you scrubbed them clean and kept them forever. Yeah, I still wear my old trainers. Now they're getting old. Going to put them somewhere safe. They're special. Yeah, really special. From here, Mez tried to sneak on trains to France, but got caught several times and sent back to Italy. Eventually, one time the ticket man came, another miracle happened. I was next to an old lady. She told them something. I didn't understand the language, but she probably told them that he's with me. So you were on a train and an old lady told the ticket man that you were with yeah, her? With, yeah, with her. They didn't believe her because she didn't look like her at all. <laughs> and then they let us through. That's amazing. Yeah, and then I arrived in Calais and I saw the most disgusting place in France ever. I saw the whole jungle. I've never seen something like that before. I've seen the camps in Sudan or Ethiopia, but that was disgusting. It was so muddy, no real tent. It was just horrible, 
I didn't want to live there at all. You didn't want to stay one night in that jungle. No, I did not want to go. Put I didn't want to put my foot through it. It was worse than you'd ever seen before. Yeah, it was so bad. People were just sleeping in the tent for months, years, so long. No way, I'm going to stay here for six months. No fucking way. The same night he arrived, Mess tried to cross to the UK. We got caught, and I never saw the person that I came with again. We got arrested, but I don't know where he went. And I came back really tired and then slept with some Ethiopian people. In the morning, I woke up. I had 300 euros with me in the night. When I woke up, I wasn't there. I was like, okay, great. They just mugged me off. So where did you get the 300 euros? My uncle's friend gave me some so I can like buy food and stuff. Okay, you know, so when, you, I, when I when I go to the camp. So your uncle's friend had given you three hundred euro, and then the Ethiopians that you slept with, who like welcomed you into their tent, stole it from you. That's what I thought at the time, but maybe I lost it somewhere. They they were saying that beforehand they had literally had no money whatsoever, and then the next morning they had massive takeaway and stuff. I was like, <laughs> like, hang on a minute. Uh, <laughs> Is that my money? Yeah, um, but, you know, I didn't mind. I was like, oh, yeah, just ask. I would have given you anyway. Really? Yeah, if, if they ask me, they do 100 or 200, I would just give them. Like, everything is sharing if you want to survive at the time because a lot of people doesn't have much. But to steal it or take it away from me without me knowing, the next morning, you're like, oh, come in and eat with us. And I was so mad. I was like, fuck you, I'm just going. So did you, do you feel like in that situation, even when people had nothing or very little, they did share generally? That's the thing. I don't know what happened because I'm not going to say that they have told it because I didn't see it in my eyes. But people that have nothing, even though they have like a couple of quid, they buy something and share it with you. Or if you have like money together, put it together and then you buy something and you eat it together. Yeah, it's very sharing and caring community, even though you have literally have nothing in the camp. We tried to go to England again. The fence was like 20 feet high or something. You kept getting caught. Yeah, I kept getting caught, sent back, and I was so tired of it. All right, so tell me about the night that you were successful. Yeah, it was Saturday night, and I was trying the whole night. That night, it was, for some reason, there were a lot of police there, and I could not go, I couldn't even jump one fence. Usually, you jump like about 10 fence, and then you get caught like the last one or so. But that night it was so stressful, so many cops. Keep hiding and jumping one, keep hiding, jumping one, keep hiding, jumping one. And then by the last one, I nearly got caught. So I jumped in the water and hold to some tree. Like for 10 minutes, freezing cold. Were you on your own? Yeah. They didn't see me, they were looking and dog was smelling and stuff and it couldn't smell me or something, so... They just drove off and I was like, thank God. Jumped out of the water and trying to climb the fence. There was no way. I was All my clothes was wet, very slippery. So I got my laces out of my shoes, tied them to the fence and then put them like a ladder. So you used your laces from your shoes as a ladder to climb up the fence? Yeah. Oh my God, that's so genius. So you had to do one step and then like take that lace and then make another step and yeah. that must have taken ages. Yeah, it did, it did. And when I jumped, they heard me and they were looking and they saw my laces and stuff. They knew someone was there, but they couldn't find me. Oh my God, it's like a film. 
and then I suddenly moved off again. I got my laces off the fence and then tied my shoes and then just run, run off to the train. I was under the train track for two minutes or so. I was thinking I was hiding and a lady was literally in front of me. A policewoman, right? Yeah, a policewoman opposite me. And I saw her and she saw me and then she didn't do anything. She just smiled and... She didn't. St- she didn't stop the train. But usually they do. They stop the train and get you off. So you think she saw you, but she saw that you were little, and she just decided, you know what, I'm gonna let him go. No idea. <laughs> Maybe I went. I went through that tunnel. I was like, okay, great. You knew through. this is mm. the Euro tunnel. It's happening. Yeah. It's happening. And how I did know, that feel? That's great. And then I was like, if that takes about thirty minutes, I'm in England. If not, then I'm not. And mm-hmm. then it took thirty minutes and stopped. And I was like, oh yes. I'm in. I was hiding in the top of the the, the, the lorry. You were the, hiding on top of the lorry? Yeah, holding to some rope. And they were sending one by one track. And then when they go out, there's a little hill. So if you're in the little bottom, ramp. like ramp thing. So mm-hmm. when you go out, you can see in the top. So this policeman saw me just hanging there. And they immediately stopped the track. And they were trying to get me off. They gave me... Uh, warning like calm down now or something like that and I couldn't understand the language (laughs) what? yeah what? the policeman helped Mez down from the top of the lorry with a ladder and told him he was safe now they put me with the rest of the people that they found it was few Ethiopian people few Sudanese few Eritrean my clothes were really wet so they gave me really warm porridge (laughs) (laughs) I didn't eat it because I didn't know what it was you're like, what is this? <laughs> yeah, no idea, but it was really nice and warm. They gave us a toothbrush. I didn't use it either. <laughs> you uh, didn't know what to do with yeah. it. Yeah, um, but they gave they gave me really nice blue jumper. You still have that jumper, don't I you? I still have that jumper. I, I think I do. Or mum probably throw it away somewhere. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> if she don't like it, she throw it away. So, so they were nice to you. They were kind really to nice you. people. I, I did not expect. They, I thought they were going to send me back, but they didn't. They asked you, didn't they, do you want to go to a centre for unaccompanied boys mm. or do you want to go to a family? Yeah, they got a translator and they asked me that question. I didn't know what a foster family was. Social service explained Mez's two options to him. Go to a sharing house and live on your own. But if you go into foster family, the family will look after you until you get 18 and stuff. And I was like, oh, sounds great to you me. I like the sound of that. Yeah. <laughs> and they were like, good, you stay here for a couple of hours and we tried to sort something out with the home office and stuff and I was like okay I was asleep the whole time really you passed out yeah I passed out and so tired the whole night trying meanwhile Kent Social Services were calling my family to let us know that they had a match for us they called my name I didn't hear them so they came and shake me up they're like okay we found your family they just put me in a taxi on your own yeah on my own with my bag my wet clothes they sent me around here and stopped outside the door and everyone in here was so excited. <laughs> we were waiting for you. We were ready. And as soon as the doorbell rang, Jazz was just literally like a happy puppy. <laughs> I was like a happy puppy. <laughs> yeah, just jumping around and uh, just gave me massive hug and carried my bag inside and... I came in and sit, sat down. Dad was cooking. Mom was asking questions. Jazz was asking questions, taking pictures and stuff. And my dad was... <laughs> Classic. My, yeah. My dad was trying to make Eritrean food. And the first thing he said to me was like, they liked Sebidaho. Sebidaho is a traditional Eritrean chicken dish that my dad had Googled the recipe for. I, I heard the Sebidaho. I was like, oh, yeah. And 
I didn't I didn't understand much of it. So Dad was trying to speak to Grinya to yeah. you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and he made really delicious abidoro that night. We ate it with bread and uh, rice. You didn't eat much though, did you? I didn't eat much. Mom showed me my room, my nice new little home. Everyone was like so buzzing to talk to me and stuff. I went to bed that night. It was all clothes on, <laughs> uh, my bin bag <laughs> beside me. Your dirty clothes in your bin bag. Yeah. The next morning, mom came up and woke me up. And I was in such a shock, thinking that I'm somewhere in France or somewhere. And I was like, oh, what? let's go. Like jumped out of bed, yeah, ready and, to run. <laughs> yeah, just trying to put my shoes on. And mom's like, yeah, it's okay. She asked me if she can look my bin bag. And, <laughs> <laughs> and you were like, yeah, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I took all my wet clothes, wet shoes. And then she like took it down and put it in a washing machine, washed the clothes for me. Classic mum. Really good. Washed the clothes for you. (laughs) How did you feel, Miss, that first day? Did you feel happy? It was very overwhelming. My first thought was I might just stay for a little while here and then I'll go somewhere else. I did not feel settled at all. Even though I felt really welcomed and loved in this house, even from the start, I feel like it's just for the moment, as always. Because you'd been moving so much, you didn't feel like, this is it now, I can chill now. After three or four days or something, then the social worker came up. I was thinking, oh, okay, they're going to take me again. I don't want to go. He was asking if I was happy here, if I want to move. I was like, no, I'm really happy here. I don't want to move. I don't want to go anywhere. They asked mum and dad questions as well, if they're happy with me and stuff. And they were like, yeah, we're happy with him. Yeah, and they were like, yeah, we're really happy. So we're definitely keeping him. And in Mez's words, we kept him and he kept us. And this month marks the four-year anniversary of the journey we've been on together. This episode is the first of two parts. Next time, we'll explore Mez's life in the UK. I hope you enjoyed listening to his story so far. If so, please subscribe and leave a review. It will help us to keep sharing these stories and amplifying the voices that often go unheard. I'd love to know your thoughts and what you'd like to hear more of. To let us know, head over to the Instagram account, at the Worldwide Tribe. Follow and leave me a comment or direct message. The more people who come on this journey with us, the more connected we all become, and the more we unite as one Worldwide Tribe. Big thanks to Alexander Wells for composing our original music and mixing this episode.